Another year has come and gone. Why, it feels just like yesterday that Governor Hobbs was sworn in for her first year and a new shade of Arizona politics took over. Well, sorta. The Democratic governor was met with pushback from the Republicans who control the legislature. There were some bills passed, a record number was vetoed, and that's what just happened on the ninth floor. The Cyber Ninjas drama continued on into another year as well. Talk about never-ending dramas. A community near Scottsdale was left without water. Free speech battles raged on college campuses, and Carrie Lake issued a lawsuit, and another, and another. Even though it wasn't an election year, it certainly was one to remember. Welcome to The Gaggle, an Arizona politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm your host, Ron Hansen. I cover national politics for the Republic. And I'm Mary Jo Pitzel. I cover state politics and policy for the paper. Joining us today are our esteemed colleagues and many familiar voices to regular gaggle listeners. Stacey Barchanger, Sasha Hupka, Robert Anglin, and Ryan Randazzo are with us to discuss 2023 in politics. The highs, the lows, the lessons, and the most important stories of the year. So everyone, welcome to The Gaggle. If you could introduce yourselves. I'm Robert Anglin, investigative reporter for the Arizona Republic. Hey, I'm Stacy Barchinger, and I follow around the governor and attorney general Chris Mays and Carrie Lake sometimes too. My name is Sasha Hupka, and I'm the county government reporter at the Republic. I also temporarily took on a stint as higher education reporter this year. And I'm reporter Ryan Randazzo. Stacy, let's start with you. Katie Hobbs had a pretty eventful first year as governor. But with the struggles against her GOP-led legislature, how would you assess her first year? 365 days in one podcast-length assessment is going to be kind of hard to do, but let's look at the evolution of Katie Hobbs over the last year. She delivers her state of the state to the Republican-majority legislature. People are upset. She pledges to protect abortion rights. Republican lawmakers, a handful, stand up and walk out. Shortly later, she says she's going to get rid of universal expansion of empowerment scholarship accounts. These are bold and controversial things that she says as a new Democratic governor straight out of the gate. Certainly were some political struggles between her and Republican leaders in the legislature across the way. She does have things she can point to as successes, that being a bipartisan budget that has wins for her in it. I was at an event recently with business leaders, and she talks a lot about the $150 million for the housing trust fund that she won in the budget. That was a priority for her, certainly is something she can point to as a victory. Of course, you know, those who have followed our work know that she got that bipartisan budget by buying off lawmakers. Um, They divvied up the surplus. Everybody got $20 million that they could spend on their own priorities. Okay, so let's hover over victories and such for just a moment. Stacey, Katie Hobbs won the election in 2022, but that didn't end the matter for her former Republican rival, Carrie Lake. That continued with ongoing litigation. We have also seen that Carrie Lake has since jumped into the Senate race, but even that hasn't fully ended the dispute over who the proper governor should be in the eyes of Carrie Lake. 
Talk about what this has been like and how it has affected Governor Hobbs and her leadership on the state front or how it's been received in Republican circles for those who are trying to stand loyal with Lake and finding themselves sort of between a a rock and a hard place. Well, I know Governor Hobbs would really like to move on from this. You know, every time there was a new ruling in a Carrie Lake case, we would ask Governor Hobbs for a reaction, and she is just quite frankly over it. Her official line is, you know, she wants to put that behind her and focus on the issues that matter to Arizonans, finding the common ground and the issues that they can find solutions on. But that is one of the things that we saw in many of her battles with Republicans in the legislature. You have this faction that, you know, is aligned with Carrie Lake and does not believe that Joe Biden is the rightful president, was elected in 2020. And those are the people that we saw really sparring with the governor You know, Jake Hoffman, the leader of the Freedom Caucus, one of the chief sort of combatants of Governor Hobbs throughout the session this year. Well, she's not totally over Carrie Lake. I mean, I get emails almost every day from her fundraising arm looking for money to help flip the legislature and really holding up Carrie Lake as the reason that voters should contribute to turn the legislature blue. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) How is that tactic working for her? We don't really know that yet. I wrote a story about that a little bit ago. Um, Because they don't have to file campaign finance reports, we have no idea how well that fundraising is going. But you're right. Carrie Lake's name appears in many fundraising missives from Governor Hobbs, which is also kind of interesting, the timing of this, right? She is certainly fundraising, I'm sure, for her own reelection in 2026. But will some of that money end up, you know, trying to flip the legislature, as the governor has said she's going to do? Will it work for her efforts to support the abortion ballot measure? We will see. Hey, I have a question on that. I remember last year, the one thing I remember was how Hobbs didn't like talking to reporters. In fact, she would run, run away from reporters and reporters' questions. Has she become any more sure-footed about that, or does she still run away? I have not seen the governor run in the last 11 to 12 months, no. She is accessible in that we can usually track her down at events every week or so and ask her questions. Now, politicians are really good at not answering the question that you want them to answer, right? So I will will call her out a little bit on that, but um, we are able to ask her questions if necessary. Okay, well, I have a question for Robert and for Ryan. First off, I want to praise you for your continued vigilance on the front of covering cyber ninjas and the 2020 election problems that we saw in Arizona, some really outstanding coverage on that. Tell us, for those who may not have seen every single development over the past year, What did we learn this year that we didn't know in 2020 or even 2022? Well, almost exactly a year ago, Doug Logan, the CEO of Cyber Ninjas, finally coughed up uh, thousands and thousands of text messages. So I spent last Christmas reading those, and we published some stories in January that showed a host of things that we suspected but were not certain of. Among them was that Logan was basically begging Trump to fund this effort, which sort of wipes away any argument that this was an objective and fair effort to uncover things. This was an effort to restore Trump to office, so much so that they were reaching out to the former president trying to get him to pay them because they quickly ran out of money. 
we learned a bunch of other things that we didn't know at all or even suspect, such as a controversial conspiratorial lawyer named Stephanie Lambert from Michigan was deeply involved in this. And Doug Logan actually messaged with her more than anybody else. We knew that there were other Trump-affiliated people like Christina Bob, who actually works for the president, uh, former president now, who was guiding his hand and telling him what he needed to report. So that was just the start of it. And as we continued to pour through those records that we finally obtained throughout the year, Robert found a, a host of other things like that we were pretty certain now, thanks to Robert's reporting, that they could not count the ballots. I mean, they could count them, but then they couldn't tally up the totals there. Doug Logan admitted he couldn't count his own numbers. So this whole circus, this whole carnival-like atmosphere surrounding the audit at the Veterans Memorial Coliseum, volunteers coming to count ballots, all of it was for nothing. That's what the text messages show. He couldn't count them. He couldn't get other people to count them. They hand counted these ballots, but then they couldn't tally the results. And his frustration comes through in text after text after text. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. What emerges is that there was a court, that Arizona, that the audit was actually part of a coordinated plot to challenge elections and election machines in multiple states, including Georgia and Michigan and Pennsylvania, among others, and that they actually were bankrolled by wealthy Trump donors who sought those actions and did successfully take voting machines and voting equipment and voting data and take them apart in hotel rooms in an effort to challenge the election results. So the audit wasn't separate. It wasn't, as Karen Fan told the Arizona taxpayers, a nonpartisan, unbiased way to determine if there was anything wrong. No, this started out and continued and was carried out as an effort to get Trump back in office. The Gaggle runs a mailbag where we invite our listeners to send in topics that they'd like us to address. And one of the most popular this year was water. And nowhere was it probably a bigger issue than in the suburban, exurban community of Rio Verde foothills. Sasha, you were out there countless times to follow this water saga. Give us a quick overview of what the issue was and how it was finally resolved. So this is an issue that started well before the beginning of this year. For years, politicians from Scottsdale and Maricopa County and the residents of Rio Verde Foothills have gone back and forth on how to solve this community's water woes. The issue is that Rio Verde Foothills is a community built on a very unstable water table. And so not everyone can just drill a well and get water from the ground. A lot of homes are on dry lots. They weren't prevented from building there because of an exemption in state law surrounding subdivisions and lot splitting. But for those homes, that means they need access to water that is hauled in from outside the community. And for years, Scottsdale provided that service. And then Scottsdale said they wouldn't. They said well in advance that on January 1st of this year, the water would stop. And they stuck to that. It stopped. And so that put this community in a situation where for hundreds of homes, they needed to find another source of water. It's a matter of survival. Everyone needs water. We live in a desert. And it wasn't easy to find. They could go down to Apache Junction and get water from there. There was a period where I think they could go out to Peoria and there was a filling station there that they could use. But it was adding 
tens of miles to these trips, round trip for these trucks to bring water. And so their water bills skyrocketed. And none of these sources were reliable, which means that at any time, any of these sources could say, you know what, we can't continue providing water to these haulers. We can't continue providing water to these communities and do the exact same thing as Scottsdale did and cut them off. And so they were in a really precarious situation and a lot of people were conserving water. I mean, I met residents who were collecting rainwater off their roofs and using that to flush their toilets. People who were showering at the gym or doing laundry at friends' houses in the city of Scottsdale. So I have a question on this. The city of Scottsdale gave these folks years notice that they would cut them off on January 1st. Had they done any preparation? Had they looked anywhere else for a water supply or were they really starting at ground zero when they actually lost their water? So for years, there was discussion around forming what's known as a DWID, a Domestic Water Improvement District for this area. And that's a special taxing district that would have helped provide infrastructure and gotten water to these people. The Maricopa County Board of Supervisors opted last year to vote that down. It was in August that they made that decision. And the reason why the supervisors voted it down was because they were unconvinced that the DWID actually had a feasible financial plan moving forward. And Supervisor Tom Galvin, who represents that area as well as the city of Scottsdale, said that he thought a better solution could be found through a private company coming forward and going through the corporation commission process to serve these people long term. I think he expected that Scottsdale, knowing that there was a solution in the works, would budge on their date and would say, okay, we can give you water for the next year or two while you work to get this infrastructure in place, and then we'll do the cutoff. Scottsdale did not do that. Mayor David Ortega felt very strongly that his city, given shortages on the Colorado River, could not continue to provide water to this community. And it's worth noting that Scottsdale gets a very large portion of its water from the Colorado River. It is much more dependent on that water than most other cities in the valley. And so it became this political standoff between Galvin and Ortega. Meanwhile, you have these residents who don't have a reliable source of water. They could still get it from other sources, but it could get turned off at any time. And it was expensive, and some people up there really couldn't afford it. And this situation continued throughout most of the year. Rio Verde foothills, it's just one thing, right? Or are there others? I believe that there are others. There are other communities that have been built up in this way through this exemption with lot splitting. And from tracking water hauling trucks earlier this year, I know there are all sorts of places where this water is going. The problem is that there's no entity that actually tracks it. And so nobody can sit down and say, here's how many communities might be impacted in coming years by the water situation with the Colorado where cities are starting to tighten up on their water supplies. But we know that chances are there are other communities out there that in the next decade could see their water use get curtailed the same way as Rio Verde foothills, and they will end up potentially in a similar situation. So, Sasha, quickly, how did this end then? I mean, is, we, we know Rio Verde's got water. How did that happen? A while back, they managed to get a short-term solution through. Um, there was legislation that got passed through the legislature with an emergency clause. It kind of got passed at the 11th hour. It was one of the last days that the legislature was in session. They managed to get this across the finish line. And essentially what it did was establish a temporary standpipe district, is what they call it, which was five members of the community who 
their entire job was basically get some agreements in place with Scottsdale and get some agreements in place with a water provider and figure out a way to provide Scottsdale the water that it could then treat through its infrastructure for a fee and bring to its standpipe to allow the community to begin using that standpipe again. They managed to get that across the finish line in the fall. And since then, we've also seen that the Corporation Commission just approved a long-term solution for water utility EPCOR to serve this community going forward. The problem is that the Standpipe District is a temporary thing. It's only an interim solution. The water stops on this temporary solution at the end of 2025. So EPCOR needs to have all of its infrastructure built by then and operational in order to provide this community with water and ensure they don't end up in a similar version of this situation then. EPCOR has told me they will do everything they can to make that happen. That being said, they are working on a pretty tight timeline because the Corporation Commission just isn't a fast process. Sasha, you mentioned also that you've spent part of your year also focusing on higher ed. Um, A lot was going on on our campuses, um, especially at ASU, where a lot of free speech issues started to bubble up. Um, Talk a little bit about that and where that stands. A lot is definitely an understatement. We've seen a lot of attention on ASU in particular this year. It all started with an event in February called Health, Wealth, and Happiness. This event was sponsored by a center at the Barrett Honors College at ASU. And the event featured several conservative speakers, including Charlie Kirk. He's the founder of Turning Point USA, um, a conservative grassroots organization that has supported the likes of former President Donald Trump. Faculty and students decided to protest this event. There were also many students who decided to attend it. The event was held despite the protest and I think most of ASU officials thought that was going to be the end of it, but it wasn't. There was backlash to the fact that people protested this event, and ultimately when the Lewis Center, the center that held this event, closed down over the summer, its former director took to the Wall Street Journal to write an opinion piece saying that she paid for hosting this event with conservative speakers with her job. Now, the reason the center closed is because its main donor pulled out his money, and that was essentially funding most of this center's operations. But she made the argument, and her name is Ann Atkinson, she made the argument that it was because ASU wanted to curtail conservative speech, and that kicked off this whole series of controversy over free speech at ASU. Well, Sasha and Stacy both referenced the legislative session that we experienced this year under a new governor and a very combative legislature. Mary Jo, I want to uh, pull you in on all this for a moment. What stands out to you about the legislative session that we saw under Governor Hobbs in her first year in office? And what are sort of the highlights, lowlights of it all? I think what stands out is that because of the partisan division, you know, this was Arizona's first attempt at bipartisan politicking and policymaking in like 14 years. Sort of a freak out on the Republican side to have to deal with a Democrat and a brand new governor who, you know, was clearly learning as she was going um, how to deal with this legislature. So that resulted in the Republicans pretty much letting anything goes in terms of bills, bills that in previous years would not have even been introduced, I believe, you know, were allowed to move forward only to meet the buzzsaw of the governor's um, very busy veto stamp. And the governor's response, despite the vetoes, is that ultimately when it came time to get a budget done, 
She did negotiate with Republican leaders, as Stacey had mentioned. They cut a deal. Everybody got something that made them happy, tax rebates for families, the money for pet projects. The Democrats tended to pool their money for things like a little more support for education and uh, money for housing and homelessness. And then they had the whole big fight over transportation and shall we let Maricopa County voters decide if they want to renew a tax for numerous transportation projects. That also wound up being a negotiated settlement. So, you know, there was a lot of getting to know you going on behind the scenes, some degree of compromise, but on the really partisan bills, just stalemate. Hey, Mary Jo, on that, though, wasn't one of the wackiest things that I recall from this year was the Liz Harris debacle and the hearing where all the legislators, and or not all of them, but she accused several legislators and Katie Hobbs of being part of a cartel bribery scheme tied to an election that actually led to her ouster, right? Right. In fact, God, that was so long ago. But yes, there's so many things have eclipsed that. But yes, that was huge. And Harris you know, was expelled by members of her own party from the legislature, which then set off this whole cascade of, you know, replacements. But that's going to be a rallying point. Um, I do believe Ms. Harris is going to seek re-election in 2024. So that might deepen the partisan divide at the legislature. But the claims themselves were like oh, hokamani, right? I mean, the, they're just bizarre. Right. She even accused, probably most pointedly, the House Speaker, a fellow Republican, of being part of this cabal. And I think that was sort of the signature on her legislative death warrant. Turning from the state house to the federal level, um, Ron, you've been watching the Senate race, the, the emerging contours of a race for U.S. Senate. What surprised you that evolved as the year went on? You know, I, I think in many ways it's what didn't happen. The Senate race, this is for the seat held by Senator Kirsten Cinema. She is an independent. It was about a year ago that she left the Democratic Party to become an independent. This race has been sort of eagerly watched from afar and certainly with great interest here in Arizona as well. What we have is essentially a Democrat who jumped in very early in January in Ruben Gallego with no prominent challenges from anyone in his party. We have a Republican in Pinal County Sheriff Mark Lamb who entered the race three months later as the only prominent Republican running in the race. Meanwhile, we have Kerry Lake, the former gubernatorial candidate who has been litigating that election in 2022 throughout the year without her formally getting into this Senate race that everyone expected until October. And it has really sort of jammed up the Republican field. It has complicated fundraising and sort of puzzling out and polling where this race was going. And amid all of that, the incumbent, Kirsten Cinema, has not formally said what she plans to do. It's notable that her campaign expenses suggest that she has been running throughout the year, but it's really a very different kind of effort. She's not holding public events. This is still a small groups kind of thing with very low visibility presence on digital ads and such. But it's been this race that is not really fully formed and properly fought in a conventional sense. And here we are at the end of 2023 and heading into a year for a seat that will help determine control of the U.S. Senate. And it's still not even clear who's in, who's going to be waging this campaign 
throughout the year that will go for not less than $100 million, I'm sure, when it's all said and done. Ryan, I want to turn to you for just a moment to continue sort of the Washington equation and all this. It's been a remarkable year, it seems, for turmoil and drama and high-stakes standoffs in Congress, notably in the House. We saw after the 2022 elections, Republicans took control of that chamber. The governing dynamics in Washington have just been very different this year. What stands out to you, especially regarding Arizona's delegation? Well, obviously, they uh, voted to get rid of the House Speaker McCarthy. You've got a candidate like Eli Crane, who, you know, took that very controversial vote, was somewhat responsible with a few other members for the turmoil that the House faced for several weeks. And he will probably, you know, walk right back into his seat, you know, with no repercussions. But we have other members of uh, the GOP delegation from Arizona who may well lose their seat. And the turmoil with losing the speaker and the multiple votes there, the threat, uh, multiple threats now of a shutdown are going to be making life very difficult for people like David Schweikert in the 1st Congressional District and Juan Siscomani down in the, in the Tucson area district because they're likely to have competitive uh, races, especially Schweikert. You know, they're going to be asked to answer for this turmoil and, um, you know, threats of a shutdown and military folks not getting their not getting their raises and possibly not getting paid had the government shut down and the effect on tourism and all, all these other things that they would probably rather not be talking about. If they lose too many seats, it's it's only a handful uh, that the GOP has to lose nationally, and, and they lose the majority in that chamber. So the people that cause that turmoil are going to keep their seats easily, but they may have scuttled their fellow GOP party members. There was a surprise announcement from Congresswoman Debbie Lesko, who said she's going to retire. Does that change any of the equation for the balance of power in Arizona's congressional delegation? Lesko's seat is going to be one to watch, but probably only one to watch in the primary because whichever Republican wins that is very likely to go ahead and win the general election. But beyond the primary, I got to note that we have the famous QAnon shaman running as a libertarian for that seat. It sounds like from what you're saying, uh, despite his notoriety or maybe because of it, he doesn't have a prayer. Well, okay, he is going to draw a lot of attention to that race, but there are some other very notable Republicans running to replace Lesko. So that is going to be a very, I think, intense race. You have Ben Toma, who's a state lawmaker now, and he's got Lesko's endorsement. I would have to think that that's going to give him help. But you also have the former person who held that seat, Trent Franks, who quit amid a sort of ridiculous scandal where he was accused of propositioning staffers to, uh, you know, carry a child for him and his wife. So he's in the race. That is going to be newsworthy, to say the least. You know, the Republican race will be intense. And then, as you said, you have the QAnon shaman who doesn't like to be called the QAnon shaman, despite the fact that he used to show up at protests with a sign that said, Q sent me. Um... So Jacob Chansley, who did time for uh, his participation in the attack on the U.S. Capitol and was well known in Arizona before that for showing up at protests, you know, for COVID policies and election issues and, and all sorts of things. He supposedly is running as a libertarian. He could shake up that race, but I really doubt it just based on the huge Republican voter majority in that district. The Democrat is going to have a very challenging time uh, making waves. I will say, though, that Chansley has been doing the, doing the circuit. He's been doing all the conspiratorial podcasts. 
I tuned into one for as long as I could bear it the other day, and he did have 4,000 listeners. I don't assume that those 4,000 listeners are in that congressional district, though. So he may have somewhat of a base nationally of people who are interested in what a guy who wears horns and attacks the Capitol has to say, but I deeply doubt that the people in that district would elect him. Well, speaking of people not really in that district, there are also two other candidates who are running for the Republican nomination. They are Blake Masters, who ran for the U.S. Senate in 2022, coming from the Tucson area, and Abe Hamaday, the former attorney general nominee who lives in the northeast part of the valley that is outside that district. Any thoughts on the free-for-all, it seems uh, likely, in that race moving forward? Nothing other than to say that's going to be one to watch. I mean, you've got really big name recognition with uh, at least three of those candidates. And while we're naming them off, you know, Chansley isn't even the only person in that race who was at the Capitol on January 6th because Anthony Kern is running for that district as well. So, yes, you have two people who lost statewide races, so they have statewide recognition, name recognition, and probably can raise money for that. You've got someone else who's endorsed by the incumbent, and you've got some other characters in that race, so it should be fun. But uh, again, I would expect the person who emerges from the Republican primary to uh, have a significant head start going into the general election there. Hey, Q didn't do so well last go-around, right? In Arizona, the Q candidate, Ron Watkins, Kobunky Z, he kind of flamed out. We haven't heard much from him. Do you think there's a tolerance level in Arizona for that? Well, so Code Monkey Z, Ron Watkins did run, and he came in, I believe, fifth place uh, in his GOP race, but he maybe didn't do so well because he was running against Republicans, whereas Chansley, you know, is running like as a third party. So Chansley is going to get a lot of attention. I mean, people seem to be falling all over themselves to interview the guy. So I think his just general weirdness is going to attract undue attention to him, which might help him overperform in the race. But yeah, I mean, fifth place as far as votes go, if there were that many people in, in the final there. But you're right. The QAnon folks have not fared well in elections here, and, and I don't expect any different this time. General weirdness seems like an appropriate label for 2023 can't wait to see what 2024 brings us. Thank you all for joining us. Folks, if I can get you to help our listeners find you on social media, Robert, where can they find you? You can reach me on the site formerly known as Twitter, now X, at Robert Anglin, R-O-B-E-R-T-A-N-G-L-E-N. And I'm on social media as at S. Barchinger. It's S-B-A-R-C-H-E-N-G-E-R. I'm on X as at Sasha Hupka. That's S-A-S-H-A-H-U-P-K-A. And I'm also on Instagram and Freds to give you guys an alternative if you wish to use it. It's at Sasha Hupka Snaps. That's my full name again. And then S-N-A-P-S. And I'm at Utility Reporter. Well, that is it for this week, Gaggle listeners. And that's it for the year. Thanks so much for tuning in with us for all of 2023. We couldn't do this show without you. We want to hear from you. Send us a message at 602-444-0804 or a voice memo to the Gaggle at ArizonaRepublic.com. That's all one word, all spelled out. This episode was edited and produced by both Amanda Luberto and Kaylee Monahan, news director from Kathy Tulamello, 
Our music comes from Universal Production Music. Never miss an episode of The Gaggle by subscribing to us wherever you listen. If you learned something new today, be sure to share this episode with a friend. You can also leave us a review and rate us five stars. You can follow The Gaggle on social media at AZC Podcasts. I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. And I'm at Mary J. Pitzel. That's P-I-T-Z-L. The Gaggle is an Arizona Republic and azcentral.com production. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next week.